Professor Bitkite sounds pretty cool. The topic for August exists because Rod wants to become a college professor. Uh, I don't know about a college professor. That's the only... What kind of professor? Just just a regular professor. You know, I... I kind of want to just be like, yeah, there's doctor what is over a, there. What's a regular professor? Just a regular dude that just, you know, walks the streets. Rod wants to be an elementary school teacher. Just a humble professor. I actually want to ask them, like, how does the word professor even come about? Can you be a career professor that does not work at a college? Can you be a career professor that does not work at a college? But you're affiliated probably with a university. Because um, the re- university gives you the grants. Maybe you're some just like rando Maybe OpenSats can do something. They could fund a professor to do some work. He's always got an angle. Maybe, can I put an OpenSats grant? I'm going to recuse myself. <laughs> now, this is the perfect time for you to uh, fund oh, me. We actually have some alpha because it hasn't been publicly released yet. Um, we just funded eight more projects through OpenSats. <laughs> we have 41 projects in two months. Dude, give uh, this guy a round of applause in the open stats. Pretty fucking awesome. Wait, so forty-one projects in two months. Uh, what was it before? Uh, previously, how many projects have you funded through open stats? Through open stats was a through long- Matt Odell Corporation o- through open stats. I don't o- know, whatever. O- open stats was a uh, was a long journey. We didn't really have. Um, we had we had funded uh, up up to this point. We had funded Graphene. Um, and we had funded Hoddle Knots Legal Defense Fund. And then OpenSats has two different um, techniques. Is like we uh, projects can get open source projects can get listed on the website, and then people choose to donate to those projects. So we supported a bunch of projects that way. But in terms of actually having uh, money to give out, we just did not have that much money to give out until Jack Dorsey agreed to give us $10 million. And now we have this massive bag of Bitcoin that we're distributing to open source developers as quickly as possible. Can you tell me about your custody strategy? It's a very deliberate custody strategy that we, no one, no one can rug, no one can rug the, it it will take multiple people to rug the amount. Let me put it that way. There's a lot of safeguards and uh, we're not trusting any custodians with it. We're doing it. We're doing it the right way. But we also announced our, Second uh, long-term support uh, grant recipient, which was Josie Baker, who's a long-term Bitcoin core contributor. He does a lot of review work. Um, And it's actually kind of timely because he's also going to start doing a bunch of Libitcoin work. uh, And they just have the vulnerability. And the whole LTS grant system is like, uh, for these guys that are working on Bitcoin core and like the, the really important projects in the space, if they're top tier developer talent, they need at least like two years of 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 known support. Like they shouldn't be like campaigning for new funds like every six months. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they're just going to go work for like a Google or a Facebook or something like that where they actually have job security. So the LTS is is something that we're very proud of, and, and I don't think anyone else is really doing it like that. So what about supporting some of the uh, local open source projects here in Tennessee? So one of the first things we did at OpenSats was uh, we brought Gigi in uh, to work full time. Gigi's this absolute legend. Uh, and he completely reworked our whole organization, all of our processes, made them super efficient. And uh, like the first order of business was, okay, 
uh, we need to start getting some grants out. We need to start getting processes. So they re we reduce the scope tremendously. So right now it's only software projects um, that we're providing funds to. Um, but the hope is that in the future, you know, you start adding education elements to it. You start adding physical spaces. But like the real question came out is like, so as soon as the announcement came out that, that we received $10 million donation, a bunch of grant requests came in awesome. and we got a lot of physical spaces came in. I mean, um, <clears throat> Bitcoin Park did not apply. Um, and then the, the question became like, what do you like? OK, maybe like the first couple, like you could actually vet and know. But if like cat got out of the bag that like you could just launch a physical space anywhere in the world and then just apply to open sats for a grant. It's like, what are we going to like send people to those cities to like, is this a real physical space? Like, do they have a sustainable model? Like, all these questions. And we're like, no, we're just going to reduce them in the scope. So right now it's, it's, it's purely open source developers and we'll expand over time. I think like the way we built this thing is, is the goal is to be nothing short of the, of the largest open source funding nonprofit in the world. Like, I think like we have a juggernaut on our hands. We just yeah. have to build it from the ground up with strong foundations. Dude, give Matt and the Open Sats team a huge round of applause. Uh, show of hands, who was here uh, in July for the Lightning Summit? Let's go. Jim was here. Jim, you got a second to come up here? Yeah. Come here. Give this guy a round of applause real quick. I don't know if you know this story. Just grab one of these mics. Does anyone know uh, Wavelink by show of hands? Wavelink? Okay, cool. Do you want to explain what Wavelake is a little bit from? Yeah. Wavelake is a website where if you are an artist, a, you know, unsigned artist, you can go drop your music up on there and people will play it. And did you know about Wavelake before the Lightning Summit? I did not know about Wavelake. And then you brought, did you bring your family members to the Lightning Summit? I did. I, I told my wife and daughter about it. My daughter is a 19-year-old pop and punk singer-songwriter here in Nashville. And she can't, this, dude, this is, we're all in now. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, and my wife and daughter are going to be pissed that I'm down here talking about them, but whatever. Um, so I, we came down on Friday. Rod introduced me to them. Um, the guys from Wave Lake are awesome. Um, I'm despite my gray hair, I spent four years on the road as a musician. I dealt with all the bullshit from the record labels, and I'm a loan officer now. But anyways, <laughs> so my daughter, get this, my daughter drops one song up on Wave Lake, and within two or three weeks, it was the first song on Wave Lake to get a million sats. Yeah. And, and then um, Adam Curry picked up on it, and Adam's been talking about her and her podcasts. Uh, some gentleman down in Australia has been talking about her and her podcasts. So my wife and I have been feverishly learning about Bitcoin and Lightning and everything behind the scenes. Just today, my wife was talking to the guys up in Canada um, with MASH, because they are put, my wife is integrating Lightning into my daughter's website. Um, so she's all in. She has made more money off of Wavelake in a month than she has in five years 
on the streaming platforms. Let's fucking go. How awesome is that? Thank you for sharing that story. And I'm going to share this link with the meetup page as well as our Discord. And you could just text that to me. That'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, what, What's her name? And what's, where can people find her? Uh, her first name is Ainsley. A-I-N-S-L-E-Y. Last name is Costello, just like Elvis and Abbott Costello, right? Ainsley Costello. Um, and I'm done saying, you can find her on all streaming platforms. Fuck that. Go on, go on Wave Lake. Let's go. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you, Jim. Round of applause for Jim. Thank you. Um, if you see a 52-year-old gray-haired guy washing Rod's car, it's a TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's badass, by the way. Yeah. Jim, by the way, just told me this like 15 minutes ago, this story. So I was like, do you mind sharing it with the, the community tonight? Um, uh, by the way, show of hands, who's first time here tonight? Let's go. All right. Rock and roll. Um, this is how many meetups have we, <laughs> we were discussing how many meetups uh, consecutively. There's been 14 here, right? 14 here. Yeah. And we've been doing for two August years? 21. Was, yeah, so two years we've been running meetups. This is the official two-year meetup. This is the official two-year meetup. Let's yeah. go. Yeah, that's right. Thank you all for coming. No month skip. No month skip. No off. Like, similar to Rabbit Hole Recap. We have the uh, consistent... Who's going to break first? Rabbit Hole Recap or... Uh, Rabbit Hole Recap has been going every week for five years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. So... That's what I have to say on that. Oh, okay. Um... We're, we're reversing roles. Typically, Matt's up here moderating and being on a panel, but I'm going to be doing it tonight with Harry. So tonight's topic is Bitcoin and academia. And I don't know how the hell these guys hustled uh, Bitcoin in their uh, respective universities, but we're going to find out tonight. Um, it's going to be a little SEC-focused uh, as well. So can you guys jo join me in welcoming Professor Hendrickson from Ole Miss, as well as Professor Ray from uh, Texas A&M? Please. And Harry. And so Harry, uh, within the last two hours or maybe four hours, finagled his way on the panel today. Because he's, what type of degree did you get, Harry? Uh, I have a, a uh, reformed Keynesian economics degree. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were the one that's like, no, 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 I need to ask these guys some questions. Um, before yeah. we get into, you know, because each university has different curriculums, each university has different programs you guys teach on, I'll let you guys explain that. I have four kids under the age of five, and I battle with this question a lot. Should my kids go to college? You're looking at me, so you want me to go first. Um, I mean, it depends what they want to do. I think we force way too many people to go to college. Uh, this is evident both from what people are doing with their degrees, from the people who have student loan debt and crappy jobs, and... It's also evident in the classroom there are just certain people who are there that are not prepared. Um, but I do think that like a lot of the things that people are talking about publicly are things that are, I think those are things that are already self-correcting. So like everybody who comes during the summer, you know, for orientation and all these things, like the students, the parents, everybody, uh, they're like focused on what can I major in that's going to get me a job. And like I was telling you earlier, I get statistics. I'm, I'm the chair of the department, so I get statistics on every uh, major, you know, in the university and what's going up and what's going down. 
and you look at the stuff that's going up and it's like business, accounting, economics, uh, computer science. Basically, if you can, if, if the job market is good for those majors, those majors are going up. Everything else is going down. So all of these um, sort of consumption uh, majors uh, where there's not a clear job path, nobody's doing them anymore. So that's good. Sir. So uh, howdy um, to everyone. Uh, my answer to that question, Rod, is, is that uh, as you can guess, there's a lot that's broken about, about higher education. Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I work at a state university and it's a giant bureaucracy. The incentives are skewed. Um, it's impossible to innovate. They're, the students are getting screwed all the time. Um, there's a lot of problems. Unfortunately, it's also largely a monopoly or an oligopoly, and so universities have tons of market power. Uh, so in our lifetimes, I still think that college is going to be uh, the main game for uh, the next 40, 50 years. Uh, beyond that, I would say uh, for your grandchildren, I would say maybe, maybe not. I think that's a fair answer. Okay, so this also leads me to the – maybe you can explain to the audience what um, – which group you're in, or which department, curriculum, how you're teaching Bitcoin, uh, or you know, do you have Bitcoin-focused uh, classes? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I am an economist by training. Uh, I was uh, actually a game theorist, uh, and so I came to Bitcoin intellectually from from game theory. Uh, so I'm I'm based in the the Mays Business School at Texas A and M. Uh, I wanted to get Bitcoin in the curriculum for the last few years. I launched a Bitcoin conference in 2020. Uh, and then another one in 2021. And I wanted my students to understand this revolutionary technology to me is the greatest invention of our time. And, uh, and I realized to do that, actually, Bitcoin is more controversial in social science than it is in hard science. And so my strategy was, as a game theorist, is that let me just take the path of least resistance and try to get it launched in computer science. Last spring, I taught the first Bitcoin class at Texas A&M called the Bitcoin Protocol. And we follow Jimmy Song's book, Programming Bitcoin. If you've ever read it, I, it was one of my favorite books these last few years. I read during the pandemic. We go through that book. We get to basically build elements of a Bitcoin library uh, and really touch the, the code base. So it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun. Um, I taught that in the spring. I'm teaching that again this fall. And I'm also teaching this fall a new Bitcoin class for business students. Uh, which is really everything about Bitcoin that's not in the protocol. And so that's the economics, the business, the macroeconomics, the finance, mining, the industries around that. So as much as we can cover uh, to really expose Bitcoin to a broader generation of students. And so th those are my two classes that I'm, I'm doing this starting in a week from Monday. Uh, no, this Monday, actually, this Monday. Before yeah. I pass it over to Professor. Yeah. Hey, yeah, give this guy a round of applause. That's freaking awesome. Before I pass it over to Professor Hendrickson, I'm curious, like, what's the student growth between year over year in terms of each of those classes? Yeah, so the the, the business class is brand new. So that is that one is uh, we're starting it out as a small seminar. So we'll have 15 kids uh, this fall. Um, we had 30 kids in the in the protocol class, the computer science class, and we have another 30 coming up this yeah. uh, this fall. Also, how oversubscribed were you? Oh, we we sold out uh, in the first few hours. Actually. What? So, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it was pretty uh, it was pretty popular. So did you just yeah. like forward that e email to your dean and say, you know, how about them apples, <laughs> <laughs> or something? Whatever you yeah. guys in academia do, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. that's what college like. We all saw that movie, right? What was yeah. the movie again? 
Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah How about yeah. them apples? Yeah, that's right. Well, how about yourself, Professor? Uh, I've been slowly smuggling in Bitcoin for ten years. Um, so I've taught. I, I usually teach money and banking every year, and so money and banking. I would say probably nine, ten years ago, like we would. I, I started spending like the last class, like, hey, let's talk about this thing, Bitcoin, and then. It started to be like the last week, and then it started to be like the last two weeks. Um, and it's actually just like a great way um, because like all of the finance majors, all of the econ majors, they all have to take money in banking. So they're my hostages. And, uh, but the thing is, is like they're all super interested in it. And, and the reason that I leave it for like the end is that we can, we can take all of the things that we learned. And so I'm going to... Uh, preemptively uh, get in front of uh, Harry's questions later, but uh, <laughs> we can take all of the things that you, that you learn in there and we can say, okay, now let's take all these things that we learned and let's see how they would apply to something that didn't exist when these ideas were written down. And then we can compare, you know, like what would we expect to happen? What, you know, uh, how does this fit uh, with the theory, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, now this is, th th that's like the favorite aspect of the class, I think, is that they finally see, you know, how this relates to something that, you know, they're hearing about that they might be interested in or that they want to learn more about and things like that. Uh, but my greatest success is that, uh, so one of my, uh, one of the professors in my department who is um, approximately 60 years old came to my office yesterday. He's teaching a course on American financial history this semester, and he came into my office because he said, I just want to let you know this is the first year I'm going to teach Bitcoin in the American financial history class. So this is, uh, so yeah, I, I think that this is a way, um, you know, if it's reached, uh, if it's reached that point, like I, I think, you know, uh, it's just going to become, you know, part of all of the monetary and financial curriculum at some point. I'm going to keep going because I'm now curious. Let's just say, hypothetically, I have a meeting with the dean of, let's say, some university like Vanderbilt. How, let's just say I'm having coffee with him. And, you know, we start talking about things, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And then Bitcoin comes up. How would I, like just a layperson, pitch Bitcoin in a curriculum, a Bitcoin curriculum to a new dean? Or is that Dean the right person to even be pitching this to? I guess maybe to you, Croak, first. Yeah. So in in uh, in my case, um, I, I think the the there are two approaches. You could kind of go with a, I guess, a more subtle approach or more kind of balls to the wall uh, approach. Yeah. Full scent, <laughs> no all gas, no brakes. <laughs> like that's how I live my life. <laughs> right, right. Okay. I think I got that order all fucked up, but yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I, I think I think the Trojan horse model is actually in the long term a better option okay. because uh, what I basically did is I slipped it through the cracks of the bureaucracy because I didn't have to go to the dean. I went to a curriculum committee and my class was actually rejected the first time. And I asked them why, why, why did you reject this? And they couldn't even give me a straight answer. It was just a bunch of bureaucratic nonsense. They said, just wait until next semester and reapply. And I said, do I have to change anything about the application? No, just... 
there'll be a new committee and just try it again. And that's exactly what I did. It just basically and, didn't want to do the work. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Basically. No, 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 no. You, you had done an inadequate struggle session. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Wait, exactly. What's an inadequate struggle session? Uh, this is a deep rabbit hole, but uh, during the Maoist uh, regime change oh, Jesus in China, Christ. Uh, a struggle session is how a person who did not adequately uphold Maoist communism would be redeemed by a, a jury of their peers in public, and these would or potentially end up in you know stoning to death from time to time if they were inadequately performed. Yeah. And so you need to verbally demonstrate your commitment to the ideology in order to not be dead. <laughs> this is why I call him Big Brain Harry. He just... <laughs> um, but please continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. So that... So, That's right. <laughs> well... <laughs> so I've got, exactly finished right. my struggle session over here. <laughs> so the other thing, anyone who wants to uh, propose a Bitcoin class, I think one question they have to answer is how do you deal with sort of the blockchain conventional wisdom? And I want to just put it out there, right? Because it's going to be in your life and you have to deal with it. And, I, you know, I think the standard Bitcoin approach will be, you know, if I think if, you, if you're too aggressive with them, you could just kill the class and it would never get off the ground at all. And so it's kind of this delicate balance, balance where I had, we have a cryptographer and he's a blockchainer, he's not a Bitcoiner. And I needed his support. I needed him to write a letter that says this is going to help the, the computer science department. And, uh, you know, so very publicly with him, I was very friendly, but I was very clear that this is a Bitcoin class. We already have a blockchain class. We're going to focus on Bitcoin only. There's enough here that will develop its own, uh, that merits its own class. And you have to come up with kind of clever ways to, to fit into the curriculum. So what I did was I said, well, all the other classes are theoretical, which is true. Uh, we, we're going to do a hands-on coding class in Bitcoin, right? And that's what students need. They need hands-on experience. And once I put that in, they were like, oh, yeah, okay, great, we get it. You know, that's, that's something we want our students to have. And that was it. That's actually what made it work. So Rock that's what I mean, the soft approach, you know. Soft approach, okay. Yeah. I'm going to learn something yeah. um, about the soft approach. Yeah. And I learned something about struggle sessions. <laughs> you haven't learned enough. Yeah. God. Yeah, the Trojan horse approach is the best. You have to just kind of start introducing it because I, I can say this because I have to, as a department chair, I have to occasionally go to these committee meetings where people are proposing new classes and things like that. So what you want to do is you want to create this perception that you're already doing this anyway. So you kind of start incorporating it into your classes. And then when you want to make it a full class, you go to the meeting and you say, look, we're already doing this. But, you know, it's taking up a lot of time in this other class. And so, like, you know, it's, but it's really popular with students. And so, you know, like, we're just thinking about spinning this off into its own thing. And then at that point, like, if you just tell them you're already doing it, then there's not there's not a lot of resistance to it. Because they, they at that point, they're just kind of like, well, uh, you know, what are we, what are we going to do? He's just going to keep doing it anyway, right? And, and the other thing, too, is, is that you need um, – the best way to do this is to go through like a department chair, because if you can get a department chair on your side, uh, you know, there's just there's just this natural bureaucratic trading that goes on. Right. If I have something that I think is going to get a lot of opposition, I go around to the other department chairs and I say, hey, we got this thing coming up. I want to talk to you about it. 
so that before you get to the meeting, they already know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, and then they're ready to vote yes on it. And you can also say, you know, I understand that you also are proposing a class this time. <laughs> and when I'm traveling around, I can potentially tell them not to vote for yours if you don't vote for mine, right? And so nice. that, you know, that, that works. Nice. I'm learning something here. It's politics, yeah. which you need to be political about a lot of things in life. Anybody who doesn't think sales is every single job is just lying to themselves, yeah. right? Like you're selling something. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless you're like really, really, really technical, maybe, maybe. But you're selling and, your code, and even then, yeah. you're selling yourself in a job interview or something else. So it, it, it's pretty impossible to avoid. So I think we've touched on a bunch of how to integrate, like basically how to get sort of Bitcoin Trojan horse into classrooms. Um, could we talk a little bit about what then happens in the classroom and and how do you position? So, you know, we've got sort of a, a set of um, economic underpinnings for what an economy that leverages a monetary tool like Bitcoin represents. Um, how do you guys approach the compare and contrast version relative to fiat and, and how, you know, because it's pretty stark, right? You basically have zero control over the circulating supply of one currency that's held by a few small people versus 0% control that's held by no one. Um, how do you draw the comparison and contrast to sort of the existing world and the Bitcoin world in a way that, that clicks for folks? So I, I can tell you what I do. Um, the uh, in my protocol class, we spend about a month on the essentially Austrian economics, and uh, you know we start with microeconomics, and and saying, look, we understand microeconomics. Let's use microeconomics to understand money, and what would that what would that get us? Um, then let's look at how money works today with the Fed and some of the game theoretic problems we have with uh, essentially the most important price in the world being controlled by a central planner, which is the Fed chair. Um, all this stuff is, is it's kind of a shock to, uh, I think, not just engineering students, but students in general. Like, they have no idea that this is happening. You know, I mean, and to me, this is why I teach the class. It's like, it's, it's like every, you know, you don't need to teach AI, honestly. It's just, there's, there's gonna be enough interest in AI anyway. But this is an area where uh, people just need, the students really need to, need to understand this. And they're shocked. They really are shocked to hear this and to learn about this. Um, they don't believe me in the beginning. Um, but I would say over you know, 14 weeks, I can get them on my side. I don't convince everybody. I let them all make their own choices. Um, uh, but after that, I mean, I think, I think framing it, uh, I, the, while this is happening, I sort of go on the, the money route. But then slowly what I do is I, I talk about it from a technological perspective. And, and I say that this really is the evolution of the internet. And you know when it, when you look at the underneath underlying what makes Bitcoin work, it really is not that controversial. Um, and in in the end game, I think we want it to be as controversial as Wi-Fi. Like no one is gonna is gonna Wi-Fi. Like no one is gonna fight you on Wi-Fi and whether we want it or whether where to get it. And that's where I think we need Bitcoin to be and and for students to understand it that way. So for me, I already kind of always talked about alternative monetary regimes. So we would talk about the gold standard before we would even talk about central banking or fiat money or anything like that. Um, and we would also just talk about free banking, like the free banking era. We would talk about um, 
competition and currency because there's, there's actually like a, a substantial amount of literature in economics from like the 1970s uh, where people were just studying like, okay, hey, we're off the gold standard. We're stuck with the Fed. They're producing money. Like how could we introduce competition into this market? How would you compete with a central bank? And the hook, the, I mean, the way that I originally figured out how to incorporate Bitcoin into my class is there's this old uh, paper from like 1974, this guy, Ben Klein, like talked about, uh, you know, how would you have a competitive money supply? He said, okay, so suppose you just created this money from scratch. Like how would it function? And he works through the whole model and he basically says, look, like these, these competing forms of money could exist as long as you could trust that they're never just going to wake up one day and print a bunch of money before you know about it and use it to buy a bunch of stuff and transfer a bunch of wealth to themselves before you realize that the money is worthless. And his point was, is like, okay, so as long as everybody believes that the issuer would do this, like you could have this kind of money, but of course, like who's going to believe that they're going to do this. But that's an incredible jumping off point for Bitcoin because at that point you can say, okay, well, the reason that you can't trust them in, in that instance is that there's this issuer and the issuer has the incentive to change. Now let's think about how Bitcoin works and let's think about how and let's think about the various incentives here. So the code says that the supply is fixed and there and immediately the, the people who don't know much about it are like, well, you could just change the code, right? You could just increase the supply. And then we talk about, okay, well, let's think about the incentives to change the supply in the code versus the incentives in this model. And so in that model, creating more money is a way to enrich yourself at the expense of everybody else. But with Bitcoin, it's the opposite that it just dilutes all of the value that you're holding. And so, and so it just, it basically solves that problem. And then it makes for a great jumping off point. Just talk about all of these other things and how it relates to, you know, everything else that we've talked about in these other monetary regimes. Incredible. Um, the reason that I have this, this glassy eyed look is because I'm thinking back to, and now Rod has concluded his struggle session and now we begin my therapy session. <laughs> So, and for those in the room who this makes any sense to, I wrote my senior thesis around um, intraday credit spread movement during and around Fed announcement expectations. So Big brain, Harry. Uh, <laughs> now, my econometrics were the weakest part of that paper, of course, because it's not real. Um, but but uh, that's neither here nor there. So um, explain two sentences for that. It means that when the Fed tells you they're going to raise or lower rates after any given meeting, the way you would theoretically measure that announcement relative to the market's expectations of that announcement would be reflected in the credit spread, whether it's the two-year, 10-year, or, or whatever quantum, the, the difference between the 10-year rate that it trades at and the Fed funds rate the movement in that difference would be a pricing of the market's expectations of whether the Fed was, you know, let's just say the Fed raises 50 bips. If the market thought it was going to raise 75, that credit spread will either contract or expand based on those expectations relative to the announcement. <laughs> We're going to add it that to the Q&A. It was a really interesting paper. <laughs> um, so, but, but what this boils down to is that I had a professor who, advised me on this paper, um, who basically laughed the class out of the room when he said that the gold standard had any merit in a growing economy. He took the perspective 
and and told us basically that it was an embarrassing perspective as a global citizen, as a citizen of America today, to think that the gold standard could have any merit to an economy because the ability for the government to spend was so positively meaningful to GDP growth rate and that everything other than GDP growth rate within our economy was a second-class citizen. That if we just attend to that one number, we are going to have prosperity and everything else is secondary. And so that was sort of his foundational belief. He was also married to a constitutional scholar, which was alarming in retrospect. Um, so, so this was... <laughs> got him. Um, this was, so this was his foundational economic belief. He taught a number of macroeconomic classes. He was a phenomenal professor as a teacher. It's only in retrospect that this idea sort of rears its head to me as confusing. Um, could you expand a little bit about why that would be confusing, Professor Hendrickson? In our profession, no one understands the gold standard. Um, this Mic is, drop. <laughs> no, I mean, I... Um, People in my profession say dumb things about the gold standard all the time, things that are just provably false. Even if you want to make an argument uh, that we shouldn't have a gold standard, the arguments that they make aren't even the arguments that you would make. <laughs> um, I think that's – I mean I think that's the fundamental problem. And, and well – and they have a weird view of uh, history and they have a weird view of history because they claim, well, the gold standard doesn't work. And you ask them, well, wh how do we know that the gold standard doesn't work? And they say, well, think about the interwar period. Uh, you know, uh, as a colossal uh, failure. We, we had the Great Depression. Um, you know, arguably the turmoil contributed to, you know, a second world war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they don't tell you is that it was entirely the fault of central banks that this happened. It, like, so the reason that the classical gold standard period before World War I worked so effectively was that most of the countries on the international gold standard did not have central banks. And so arbitrage essentially takes care of everything. When you introduce central banks, central banks come up with all of these things. I mean, like one of the most popular things in my profession is to try to figure out whether or not central banks follow the rules of the game under the gold standard. And here's the problem with this entire research agenda. There are no rules of the game under the gold standard. They're entirely made up by academics who just think that they have a theory of how the gold standard works, which is wrong. And then they try to test the theory. And they can't find any evidence for it, but they don't reject the theory. Instead, they just say, well, we didn't need to get better data. And, um, and so like everything in relation to the gold standard is just kind of a disaster. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, mo but, but that's also one of the reasons I spend so much time on it in class and talking about these alternative monetary regimes, because people have to understand how the world actually worked, not how some people believe that the world worked. And, um, there's this incentive. Uh, so, I mean, my, my own dissertation advisor made me read his advisor's uh, book on the theory of money, and this was actually worth my time. So, in the theory of money, he had this uh, he had this chapter on commodity money, and towards the end of the chapter on commodity money, he basically said, "Look, economists will tell you that central bankers can produce better outcomes than um, than the gold standard," and he said, "But you know, those better outcomes tend to happen on chalkboards and not in the real world." 
And that was an incredible insight. And I'm thankful that he made me read this book because like that's, that's a perspective that you hardly ever get in the profession. So maybe one more question, then we'll open it up for Q&A. Or Harry, you got one more? Because I got one more to close it with some closing thoughts. Rod, I want you to take it away. Okay. What's some advice that you would give to your children about going to college as well as the future? You know, because the world is just amazing. I'm a a glass half full, uh, cautiously optimistic. I think you made a couple of really good points. Um, Professor Hendrickson around like looking at the data, looking at where people are spending their time around uh, what they're studying, what jobs they're going to do, maybe even uh, not going to college, but actually getting in the real world and doing and creating, uh, I hope, small businesses as well as uh, becoming entrepreneurs. But I guess what's a piece of advice that you would give your um, young kids as they're, as they're growing up? And I'll start with you, Crook. Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, let me let me try to f- uh, phrase this in terms of, of Bitcoin, actually, which which to me, um, Bit- the genesis of Bitcoin, which is for me what is the most exciting part of Bitcoin, uh, the genesis story and uh, really the history of the cypherpunks of Satoshi, his his writings. You know, we don't we don't know who he or she was, but we do know a lot about his his or her writings from the email list is deeply, deeply moving and inspiring. To me, it's one of the most inspirational uh, uh, acts, of, acts of human ingenuity and invention that we have today in, in the last thir- you know, 20, 20 years by far. And I think what it tells the, the, the kids is that it's okay to think from first principles, to try to solve a massive, massive problem that most people may not even know exists as a problem and to uh, rely on decades of science, which is what Bitcoin does. It rests on 50 years of of actual uh, cutting edge uh, mathematics, cryptography, economics, uh, and and social science. And to to be fearless in terms of uh, chasing that innovation. I mean, to me, Bitcoin is the, the best inspiration for that. That is really well said. That is awesome. The biggest thing, so my kids are a little older. Um, the biggest thing I try to teach them is low time preference. Uh, stop trying to have everything now. Like enjoy the world around you. Enjoy being a kid. Enjoy like, uh, I mean, so we send our kids uh, to private school. I mean, we have good schools in Oxford, but we send them to private school. Um, but we send them to private school because it's a classical school. They learn all of the, you know, um, you know, they're learning all of the great works over and over and over again throughout their lives. And, and so they, they can have some appreciation that there is a whole bunch of knowledge that's out there, um, that wasn't invented five minutes ago, uh, that people have been thinking about these questions since the beginning of time. And that there's value in in learning uh, about those views, about those people, about those perspectives. And also, like, I really spend a lot of time with them talking about, like, uh, historical stuff. I trick them into reading Thomas Sowell, my boys. Uh, the, um, you know, but, like, these, these are, um, like, these are the important things. But, I mean, the biggest thing t- to me is teaching, like, low time preference. We live in a world where everybody wants everything now. Um, and everything good in life is going to require time. 
And so you might as well learn to, um, to not only, you know, invest that time, but to enjoy that time while you have it. Another great answer. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to leave it to Harry. You got one final question? Um, my final question is that we spent a lot of time talking tonight about university politics, I think explicitly and implicitly. Um, we left two adjacent stakeholders out of the conversation thus far, and I don't want to leave the conversation now without having mentioned them. The first are trustees, and the second is the endowment. Bitcoin is a financial asset, and universities, last time I checked, had big buckets of money. Let's go. Um, Bitcoin and Bitcoin startup investment is something that we know the university endowment community has done or has looked at. Um, are you having, because you're, you're subject matter experts in, you know, in a subset of your already subject matter expert fields, did those conversations ever hit your desk? And then number two, are, is that a place that you think you would either look to or recommend looking to for additional allies as you look to bring more of sort of the academic side of the focus to bear? And also blink twice if Ole Miss or Texas A&M holds Bitcoin. <laughs> We're watching. I think that this is actually something that, uh, you know, you can push the universities on because the universities accept a lot of, um, they accept a lot of donations that are not, you know, cash. Um, so... You know, we have donors all the time who, you know, like they're like the CEO of a company and their stock options vest and they just, you know, give that stock to the university uh, and it just goes into the university's endowment. And so, I mean, I think that it's only a matter of time before somebody calls up and says, I have Bitcoin and I want to send you Bitcoin, but I want you to hold the Bitcoin. And, um, and when that happens, I mean... Uh, there's going to be some resistance initially uh, just because they know nothing about it. But over time, I think it's inevitable that somebody's going somebody's gonna to do this and then they're going to have to learn about it. I can tell you how it, how it is at Texas A&M. I have good and bad news. Uh, so on the endowment, uh, the good news is that we, they do now accept Bitcoin um, as gifts to the endowment. The bad news is that they sell it immediately into fiat. Yeah, Do not say BitPay. Yeah, yeah, Do sorry. not say BitPay. Now, but, but I will say they sell all their investments. So if, even when someone gives them some land, they sell the land right away and turn it into cash. So, um, so that's the bad news. Uh, but I think they're, they're, they're moving in the right direction. I mean, that's just a small step forward. Uh, the other, I, you can take this either way. I mean, I mean, the university did was an early investor in Coinbase. Um, so so they, uh, they still made a ton of money off of the IPO. Uh, even even now with after its crash, so 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 that's uh, so they were willing to do that. Um, on the on the trustees, um, Texas A&M is a little unique. Uh, you know, we have a huge energy uh, energy history, oil and gas, uh, fracking, all that good stuff. So uh, what's happening now, and this is great news for Bitcoin, is that Texas is overall is kind of pivoting towards Bitcoin, and the the board of trustees knows that. Uh, we're getting a uh, a container uh, for mining mining rigs on our Relis campus uh, this year, and so we're going to start mining on campus. You know, are and you so, going to be leading that or involved? Yeah, yeah, I'm in. I'm part of three other. There's two engineering professors and me that are a part of this this consortium that is, is is getting like mining to be an actual something that students can study and learn and research. 
Uh, we've got all these mining companies that are now helping to, to fund this. And uh, when, when the money is coming in, the trust trustees take notice. And so that, that is actually good news for Texas. It's great news for us. So I, I, that's probably the most uh, tactical and positive direction that we're moving in. Yeah. Rock and roll. Please give these gentlemen a round of applause. This is awesome.